When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here tonight. Before we get the show started, you know, one of the things that's an advantage or sometimes a disadvantage to doing a midnight program is that uh, by the end of the day, you've probably heard a lot of the news, you've heard a lot of the reports, and you've heard a lot of things like I'm about to say, which is that obviously, even though we've moved into September 12th here in the East Coast, we're all still thinking about the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, New York City, Washington, D.C., and of course, Pennsylvania. And uh, the number of Americans whose lives were lost and whose lives were touched by those unbelievably horrific events. We all know where we were that day. You know, I grew up always hearing people say that, um, you know, we, I remember where I was the day that JFK was assassinated. Well, that was before my time. And the infamous date in, burned into my memory where I can say I remember exactly what I was doing at that moment is the 9-11 attacks. Um, I happened to own some radio stations at the time, and, and we were going through our broadcast morning. Our morning show was on. And it was actually my mother who worked for uh, the telephone company Verizon as a directory assistance operator. And she lived in upstate New York, where we are. And she, she, her territory, though, for directory assistance was the New York City area. And she started to get flooded with people calling information to get phone numbers related to the World Trade Center. And she had no idea why until someone on the phone said, a plane just hit one of the World Trade Center towers. And she didn't understand quite what it was. And, you know, directory assistants are all locked in little cubicles. They don't have a TV or a radio. They couldn't really check. And there really wasn't as uh, heavy an Internet presence at the time. So, uh, but one thing she did do was call me and say, uh, you should check this out. It's because I'm getting a ton of phone calls from New York City. People seem a little bit worried and frantic. And sure enough, I turned on the television in the broadcast studio at the radio station. And uh, a couple minutes later, the second plane hit the second tower. And then everybody's draw jaw dropped to the floor because that was the confirmation that this was something evil. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mishap. It was evil. And then the day unfolded as we all know how it did. Um, we've had people on this program talking about various ideas related to that, but I'm convinced that those attacks were committed by some very, very evil people who all they wanted to do was kill some Americans. They succeeded in doing that, but they certainly didn't succeed in killing our spirit. And we built... We rebuilt, we mourn the loss of those who died and those who suffered because of those attacks, but we thrive. 
So I know you all join me in thinking those things and obviously sending love and prayers to everybody whose lives still remain touched by those hours on September 11th, 2001, 18 years ago. Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, on a better note, we have uh, we had a guest on last week, I think it was. Maybe it was the week before. Chris Newby. I don't know if you remember Chris Newby. She had written a book called Bitten. We were talking about Lyme disease and the uh, connection to biological warfare and weaponry. Well, there is some good news on the uh, Lyme disease front. There are some researchers in New York State at Cornell University that have developed a new test that could help doctors diagnose and treat the disease much faster at Cornell University in a news release that was uh, released yesterday, actually. The test would quickly confirm the presence of the bacteria that causes Lyme rather than the current process, which requires weeks of waiting for the patient's body to develop antibodies that determine whether or not that bacteria is present. It's a major breakthrough. And uh, this company of, uh, it's called Ionica Sciences, is working at Cornell. And uh, they say that they hope this test will be ready for doctors to use late next year. They're working on some more validation tests first. Obviously, that would be great news. Uh, When we had that discussion with Chris Newby last week, we talked about how many people know people, if not themselves, who have contracted Lyme's disease. And it, it takes so long to diagnose it properly that treatment options become limited and less effective honestly. So good news there. We're excited about that. Um, We've got a couple of great guests for you tonight. Two guests tonight. In the first hour, C.J. Zahner, who is an author and a skeptic medium, will be with us. C.J. shares uh, tonight premonitions and paranormal experiences that inspired her books, including a premonition about 9-11. Be interesting. And then the second hour of the show, Adrian Shine is a lifelong Loch Ness monster researcher and a naturalist. And there's been a new study that's talked about in the news. It was an eDNA study of Loch Ness, not the monster, but of the lake. They took a lot of water samples and they started to look for any biological material in those samples. And they checked the DNA of that biological material to see if they could find evidence of something that was anomalous particularly something that could be considered to be a monster. Uh, He's going to talk about those tests. He was involved in that research, and uh, he'll update us on the latest in the quest for answers about the Loch Ness Monster. So a lot of great stuff coming up tonight. And then if we look ahead tomorrow, Dr. Frederick Woodward will be on the program. Uh, He will be joined by Bruce the Shark Markison. I will be on the road. I will be in Rochester, New York tomorrow through the weekend. Um, But Dr. Woodward is a hypnotherapist, he's an author, and a paranormal researcher, and he'll be talking about altered states of consciousness, paranormal and spiritual experiences, and hypnosis. And then on uh, next week, uh, we've got a bunch of great stuff coming up, including Reed Summers, teacher and author. He'll share the messages of the Allies of Humanity, which is a group of extraterrestrial beings from various planets. And then a good friend of ours on Wednesday night, Joshua P. Warren, will be returning to give us a report from ground, from the ground at Area 51. Of course, we are approaching the date of this Storm Area 51 uh, exercise or gathering or whatever it happens to be. It sounds like most people have recognized that to actually storm Area 51 is a very, very bad idea. But they're going to continue this um, this gathering anyway, and they're going to make it more of a festival. 
So he'll talk about that as well. A lot of great things coming up on the program. In the meantime, visit us on social media. Like our page, Beyond Reality Radio, on Facebook. Like my page, J.V. Johnson, on Facebook. And also go to YouTube and find J.V. Johnson there. Just search for J.V. Johnson. Subscribe to that page. A lot of great uh, back episodes there, plus the show leaves uh, streams live in case you don't have a radio station in your market that carries the program yet. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we have our first guest coming on, CJ Zoner. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com. And check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaricon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. As I said, we've got a great discussion coming up for a couple of them, actually. And in the second hour of the show, we're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster. A recent scientific experiment using DNA testing was out to determine whether or not they could find anything from a DNA perspective in Loch Ness that indicated there was an anomalous creature in there. And uh, Adrian Shine will be our second guest of the night, and he will talk about that particular study, what the results were. Many of us have probably heard some of the results, but he was involved in it, so we'll get a new perspective on it. Plus, what are the latest sightings, reports, and theories related to the Loch Ness Monster? First, we will have a discussion about something very different, however. Our first guest, C.J. Zahner, is an author and a skeptic medium, and we're going to talk about premonitions and paranormal experiences that inspired her books, including a premonition of 9-11. C.J., welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to learn a little bit about you because it's the first time you've been on the show with us. Uh, from what I understand, you kind of started to develop your tastes and your goals and ambitions when you were in high school. That's when you decided you loved to read and write. Yes, I did. That was about the time then. I um, I had actually, even before that, in grade school, I always wanted to write. And then one thing led to another, and I ended up in business in college. But I always found a way back to writing, including now as a novelist. And you had, uh, I think you had uh, a teacher, was it an English teacher that I read that kind of took you I, under her wing, kind of guided you along? She did. She did. And she encouraged me all the time. And um, her name was Patsy Root. She's deceased now, but she was um, probably one of the biggest influences in my life as far as, re- as far as reading and writing goes. She was great. And did you know at that time what you wanted to write about, or was it just a passion for writing itself? Well, a little bit of both. I have a pa- I had a passion for writing, but I ha- I did have an experience when I was three years old that I never forgot. And honestly, I always thought I would begin a book with that from that paranormal experience. I didn't have too many when I was very little, but that one uh, stuck in my mind. And I I always thought, you know, I think if I write a book someday, I'll start it with that. And even though my books are fiction. Uh, some of the chapters are based on real-life experiences, and that's one of them. That was in my second book, Dream Wide Awake, and it actually ended up being Chapter 3, but it is the basis for the, for the novel. 
And I want to get into that in a little bit. Um, I know also know that, you know, you, you decided to take a different career path, probably because being uh, a novelist, an author can be a scary world, uh, especially when you're young and you're trying to start a family and all those things. Um, but there was an, uh, an incident or a, a circumstance, if you will, in 2015 that made everything change for you. Yes. My um, brother uh, came down with early onset dementia, and his wife came down with early onset Alzheimer's. And um, they were in two different nursing homes at the time, and I was having a tough time at work. And I just, one day I got up and said, you know what? This is not worth it. Life is so much more than, than your work. And I got, I picked up my purse and Went to personnel and said I'm done, and I walked out. Wow! And I never and I never went back. So, yeah, life can hit you in the face like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean it, to say that something like that is a is a reality check or a wake up call is probably putting it lightly. Um, you got to love what you do ultimately, or you know what's what's the point, right? That's the truth. Very very much so. So when that happened, uh, you know, it's it had you been writing kind of just on the side uh, during that time when you were. In, in a different profession, or did you just forget about it until you took that step? I always found my way back to writing. I ended up writing grants and federal regulations, as dull as that sound, it's still writing. And then on the side, I always did some freelance writing for uh, newspaper, local newspapers and magazines around our area, which um, was fun. That, that kept, me, it kept me going with the writing. Um, you said that you had a paranormal experience when you were young, and that always stuck in your mind as something you wanted to write about. And, and all of your books have uh, sort of an inspiration from there, and we will get into some more of those details. But was that paranormal experience your first, uh, your introduction to this type of odd phenomenon? It was, but I didn't know it at the time. I really never... I. There were. It was years later when I really realized that I was having these different kinds of visions or whatever you want to call them. Right. Um, so, so, but that was the first one. Yes, when, that I can recall with three. But it was so strong that I still remember it today. How old were you at the time? I was three years old. Three years old, and you still remember that vision? I. Still will not sleep with a hand hanging on the side of a bed because of that vision, and that's been fifty years ago. I it's stuck in my mind that that much. Hmm. I think you need to tell us what that vision was. <laughs> well, I had I was sleeping, and my and actually it's sort of like in in the story. My mother had to my my grandmother was bedridden, and my parents and I and my brother moved in the attic. There was sort of a makeshift apartment. We moved up there so that my mother could take care of my grandmother. And I slept in a big bed up there. And one night I had my hand dangling between the mattress and the headboard. Mm -hmm. And I felt someone grab my hand. And I knew for in, in my little mind, and when you're three years old, you don't really hear too much about devils. Right. But in my three-year-old mind, I thought, I, I woke up and I thought, I, the devil was holding my hand. I knew it was something bad. And I started screaming, and he would not let go. And he would not let go, and I screamed and screamed and screamed, and he never let go until my mother ripped me out of the bed, uh, picked me up and ripped me out of the bed. And, of course, 
everyone said it was a dream. And to this day, I am here to say that was no dream. I tried to convince them back then, but 50 years from since then, I still insist that was not a dream. It was that terrifying. And you, so you woke up with the feeling this grip on your hand and you were awake and trying to pull your hand away and you couldn't? I couldn't. No. Yeah. Did you see anything? I did not see anything. Just felt it. I did not see anything. No, but I, a lot of times through my life, I've, I've told people, it's as strange as it sounds. When I have these visions, they sort of come to me as movies in my head. And that's even what I call, called them in my book. And I, I, and people ask me about that all the, all the time is, do you see these visions with your eyes? And I don't. And that was why for years I did not believe it. I thought I had this overactive imagination. Right. Um, because I thought, oh, I'm just imagining it. It really wasn't until 9-11, I had the premonition of 9-11, that I started thinking, oh, wow, wait a minute, Um, maybe this is not my imagination. But I do remember that being a three-year-old child and everyone kept saying, this is your, this, you will, this is, this is, this was a dream. And I, Never would stay upstairs in that attic alone. I would never stay alone at night. I can count on my hand to this day, on one hand, how many times I've stayed alone in the house by myself. I always have to have somebody close by yeah, well, because, because of that same thing. Yeah, an experience like that will do that to you. Um, just We have just a couple seconds before a break here. Uh, but in retrospect, looking back on that event, you used the word devil. Do you think it was the devil or some, some demonic uh, being? A negative energy. Yeah. Okay. Some people call it the devil. Some people call it negativity. CJ, what is a skeptic medium? Well, my daughter gave me that nick- nickname because she she always calls me a medium. She's always telling people I'm a medium, but I don't like referring to myself as a medium because you know it has some uh, bad connotations. I don't know if it's bad, but um, people a lot of people don't believe in 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 mediums and the other thing is i'm i'm pretty logical person so i question everything so all my life when i had those movies in my head i thought it was really a wild imagination and and then when i had the 9-11 premonition it was so real uh and the thing that really bothered me about it was that it wasn't clear enough for me to do anything for anyone i wasn't able to help anyone and i felt bad about that and um that's kind of why I wrote these books. You, you always are inspired by some type of real life event. And it was just such a tragic event. And I was sorry that I, I could see it happening and I didn't know exactly where it was and it was fuzzy. But I thought to myself, what if you had a lot of people, mediums or um, people of sixth sense and anyone, whatever you'd like to call them. And what if you trained these people from a very early age um, to, to develop their abilities more, could they get to a point where they could um, give premonitions and maybe prevent right. people from dying for things like this? 
Right. Well, we know uh, we know very well that the federal government, the Defense Department, CIA have all been working or had put effort into trying to determine how to uh, harness that power. I don't know if they're still doing it. That's that's an open question. But let's talk specifically about your premonitions for 9-11. Obviously, very appropriate, given the fact we just uh, respected yeah. and honored the anniversary of those attacks 18 years ago. Uh, what did you see and how far in advance was it? It was two months before it happened, and it came, I was always at work. It always came um, between 10 and 10.30 in the morning when I was at work, and I'd only been there seven months, and I didn't know the people all that well, so I really didn't tell anybody I was having that. However, I did take down some notes on a, on my, you know, one of those big desk calendars. But uh, the first part of the vision would come as I was approaching a city, and I took some notes um Northeastern America, pine trees. I knew I was in upper north, the upper north. Um, I thought I was by the Great Lakes. I knew I was by a body, body of water. And as I, it, the premonition came three days in a row. And then after that, it came once or twice a week. And as it came, I would get closer and closer to the city. And I never realized until months later that I actually had a plains eye view of the city, because I was approaching it over pine trees, and uh-huh. I said, small city, and then I put cross that out and put medium, and then I thought, as I approached it, I thought, no, this is a large city, and I just put a question mark, so I kept all those notes, and that was the first half of it, and then the second half, I was at my desk, and after I'd get that first vision, I'd get the second vision where I felt like the, the room was swaying, and there was going to be an earthquake. And I would look down. I remember grabbing onto my desk and looking down, and I could see the floor, the big boulders buckling beneath me like they were buckling right in half, and the whole building was going down. I was only on the fourth floor, and um, but that's what I saw. And I saw this continually, and so all through the month of July. So at the end of July, I thought, I'm going to throw in this calendar out, you know, those big ones that you rip off month, every month. So I didn't throw that out, and then yeah. I thought, if nothing, ha- if no building collapses by the end of August, I'll rip it off. Well, then in the end of August, I happened to be at a training in Washington, D.C. It was about a mile from the Pentagon, and I remember the training was in the basement of the hotel, and I kept thinking to myself, oh, dear God, I hope this is not the building that's collapsing, because if it is, I'm dead. I'm never going to get out of here alive. And so when I went back to work, I did not throw the August calendar out, and I said, you know what? I'm not throwing this. I, I have to throw this out at the end of September if, not, if no building falls. And then on September 11th, someone came in and said uh, the, the Trade Center, the Twin Towers had been hit, and I, it was awful. Everybody was congregating in the reception area, and I, I had a lot of work to do, and I was felt, thought it was awful, but I didn't really feel horrible until they came back and said the, a building collapsed. And I said to the gentleman who told me that, oh, my God, were there people inside? And he said, I think there were, yes. And I I was devastated. I was like, oh, gosh, and I wasn't thinking of myself. And I went back and sat down at work at my, at my desk, and it hit me. Oh, my God, this is exactly where I was. And it was probably two minutes after 10 or 10 minutes after 10. And on my calendar, I had only written two times. I think it was like something like 10, 12, and 10, 16. And then I wrote before noon because it was always between 10 and 10.30. So then I jumped up and I ran out front and I said, what happened? And they said, well, one of the buildings collapsed. And I actually had to leave and throw water in my face. And 
by the time I came back to the reception area, the second building had fallen, and I must have looked so bad. Our The administrative assistant followed me back to my desk, and she said, are you all right? And I said, I am, but I, I'm telling you, I had this, this vision for two months of, the, of this building collapse, collapsing, and then I remembered that I took the notes, and so I, I said, oh, wait, I, I took the notes, and I cleared everything off my desk, and there was my big calendar, and there were so few notes, and she didn't say anything, and I said, well, I know it, they're just very, there's such a few notes, but it doesn't give the grasp, the gravity of this vision I've been having. And she said to me, oh, I believe you. And I said, do you do? And she goes, yeah, look at, look at where you kept all your notes. And all of the notes about that vision I had kept in the little box marked 11, the 11th of July. Wow. I had always gone back and wrote those notes. I had notes all over, but the only notes for the 9-11 vision was in the box marked 11th. I still have that calendar. I saved it. Yeah, you should. But it was just, it was awful. It was, it was devastating because I was unable to help anybody, and that is, that is how I came up with the idea of, you know, because I had heard of Stargate, where they trained adults to do remote viewing, and, you know, there's been rumors that the Russians have been doing it, and right. I created this whole entire book um, about remote viewing, and I actually, uh, this is a little on, on the side, is that I actually placed this book in Area 51 be- because of a trip that I took. Uh, my daughter and my husband and I drove from Phoenix to Death Valley, and if you've ever gone that way, you go right by the edge of Area 51, and it was so desolate. When I drove by there, I thought, oh, yeah, if the government was going to hide a school of kids teaching them remote viewing, it would be in Area 51. So I created this whole project. I called it Project Dream, and I created this whole thing. I put said they have basketball courts there. Well, then, with all the chatter that's going on now about Area 51, you hear there's rumors that, why, why is there a baseball field there? And my daughter calls me up, and she says, Mom, are you? Are you sure this isn't another premonition of yours? And I actually have had people that have read it who have who have said to me, stopped me and said, is, is any of this true? <laughs> so with all the chatter with the Area 51 and that, it, 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 but as far as I know, it's only fiction, and it was all because of, of, of those two, that experience from when I was little and the, and the 911 premonition and wishing that I could have done something you know, to help prevent it. Did you look into it all? And I know that this might not be your discipline, but, uh, you know, the, the indigo children and the, uh, the fact that a lot of kids also had these premonitions and were drawing uh, pictures in their schools, uh, you know, a week before the attacks that depicted the attacks. Did you ever look into that? We've talked about it on this show before. You know, I did hear that there were a lot of people who had premonitions from 9-11. I did not hear that it, a lot of them were the indigo children. And um, I do I do include a lot of children. They're all children in this program when they start. Mm-hmm. And how it is, what they do is after 9-11, they collect these children from across the country. They have a sixth sense, and they're always from small families. A lot of them are destitute, so. Nobody that could really cause a lot of trouble, but they had to have the sixth sense. So, yes, and even some of them have, um, are from the Midwest, and they have these connections. So I know a little bit about the indigo and the um, light workers and things like that, but but I haven't heard any of, 
of about them having the visions of 9-11. So the experience you had that you told us about when you were three years old, hanging your hand over the edge of the bed and being grabbed, um, that, I'm assuming, if I put two and two together here, makes up uh, part of the book in Dream Wide, Wide Awake, correct? Correct. So correct. That, That's, yeah, go ahead. That is the that is the little girl that has the um, premonitions and has the best sight of all, and she is the little girl that 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 that's happened to. It's it's actually her mother that it happened to when she was little. So the the book kind of goes back and forth between generations because, as you know, sometimes mediumship does run in families, and right. um, so that's kind of what this is about. It's about a family of of women who seem to have this extraordinary sixth sense and know things. And of course, my real life, they're based on real life experiences, but it's all fiction, but real life is a lot, a lot duller than (laughs) than fiction. So I've, you know, elaborated on it and expanded on it, but yeah, that's, that's what the little girl sees. It's the same exact experience. Now, in, I had. In, in another of your books, Project Dream, there's a a, a sequence um, where the character has a vision of an angel in a chapel. Is that something that comes from your experience as well? It is. It is. I was with a, a, a friend. She was relatively a new friend. She was actually my boss at a new job. And I'm, I was raised Catholic, and we are both big prayers. We always prayed for our children. And she said, would you like to visit this little side chapel with me? And I said, sure, let's visit it. So I went there, and it was just darling, and I loved it, and I knelt right down and said my prayers, and and I, it's kind of like one of those things where you have this movie in your head, and I had this vision of this angel just swooping down out of the, out of the ceiling, and she said to me, um, my daughter doesn't believe in this sort of thing, and she laughed, and she said some other things about her daughter, and but the, the true meaning that I've Anytime I've ever seen an, an, a spirit, the, the, what they want people to know is that they're, they love they're the ones left behind, and they're very happy. And that's really the message that she relayed to me. And right before she left, she opened up her arms, and all these roses fell out. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't know. I thought it was my imagination. So I'm leaving. I was so shook up because it was so real that my boss and my coworker and boss said to me, what's wrong? And I said, well, I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy. You don't know this about me, but I sometimes have these visions. And I think one of the ladies in that room that was praying in that room, I think her mother appeared to me. And she said, well, what happened? So I explained to her and she goes, well, did you, do you know what the lady's name was? And I said, no, I don't. I, I usually don't hear any, hear their names. I never seem to be able to get that right. They just send me, give me signs. And I said, oh, wait, I bet her name was Rose. Her name was Rose, because I remember the roses, and she was real quiet, and I'm thinking, oh, she thinks I'm nuts. And she looked at me, and finally she said, my mother's name was Rose, and her mom had passed away recently. Oh, wow. So I put that in the book. Of course, I elaborated it and kind of combined it with a 9-11 vision, whereas people ask me, did you really save somebody's life? No, I wish I had, because in the, excuse me, in Project Dream, the little girl saved someone's life with that vision, with explaining that vision. But no, I didn't. I wish I had. But yes, that's another one that was based on an actual experience. I don't want to put you on the spot here, and we are going to run out of time rather quickly, but have you had any premonitions <laughs> recently that concern you, disturb you, scare you maybe? No, most of them do not scare me. Most of them 
are um, most of them are good. And I think you had a you had someone on recently that I heard say like draws like, but I think it's also that um, I think that's very true. But I think I think if you're a vulnerable person, you're a, if you're a vulnerable spirit, you attract negativity. And I think that's why when children sometimes are scared. Because now that I'm an adult, I really do not have very many of those. I mean, I had the premonition, the horrific premonition of 9-11. But the people that I see and the spirits that I see, they always have good messages, and most of it's about love. Well, that's that's encouraging. Um, of the books that you've written, is there a, a starting point if someone was new to your work? Should they start with anyone particular? Actually, I've asked some of my readers that, and because I try to write them as standalone books, and both I have three books, but only two are the paranormal about the about the premonitions, right. and those are really standalone books. The one is Project Dream, and one is Dream Wide Awake, and you can really actually start with either book. And where can people get a hold of these books? Oh, they can get them on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and Kobo. I'm and- not sure they're they're not out in the bookstores yet, mm-hmm. but uh, hope, hope to be someday. And your website is cindyzoner.com, and Cindy is, is with a Y and an I-E at the end. Um, it's C- yes, it's C-Y-N-D-I-E, but it's easier just to Google cjzaner.com. Gotcha. Okay, that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, any projects in the works that you want to let us know about? Oh, yeah. I have had several people ask me what happens at the after Project Dream, so I kind of left something open there, so... I am working on, I'm actually editing a historical book. It's a historical romance, and that does have some sixth sense in it. And then I am, um, ed- and then I am writing uh, the, dream, the Dream Snatchers. That's the sequel to uh, the other two. It's, and that's got a lot more, yeah. a lot more about kids and <laughs> about um, some of the missing children and kids on the border that I started writing a while ago went before all this happened with all with all with all the the children and so it's I don't know maybe there is a little bit of uh, premonition in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's been a great discussion, CJ. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We appreciate your time and uh, the books sound great and uh, look forward to uh, hearing more of your work uh, when you come back on next time. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster. Now, this is a, one of the, uh, I guess what we'll call it is one of the hot topics of paranormal encrypted discussion in the 70s, particularly when the In Search Of episode came out talking about uh, this particular phenomena. Um, it, it, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes there are a lot of reports, and then we'll go long periods without any, which makes the mystery even deeper. No pun intended. Actually, it's not true. I intended that pun. Um, But our guest will be Adrian Shine. He'll be talking about the latest effort to identify what the Loch Ness Monster is or if it exists by using DNA testing of the lake. A recent testing has been done of the water of Loch Ness. And they were looking for any kind of biological material that they could DNA test. And they determined from that some very interesting things. They were hoping to find some type of anomalous DNA that they could tie to a creature that we know as the Loch Ness Monster. Our guest, Adrian Shine, will be with us in just a minute. He has been a lifelong Loch Ness Monster researcher. He's a naturalist, and he was involved in this project. He's going to tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, Looking ahead on the program, just so you know what we've got coming up for you tomorrow night, 
Bruce the Shark Markison will be in for me. I'll be headed to Rochester, New York for an event. And he'll be talking with Dr. Frederick Woodard. Dr. Woodard is a hypnotherapist, an author, and a paranormal researcher, and he'll be talking about altered states of consciousness, paranormal and spiritual experiences, and hypnosis. Next week, we've got a lot of great shows for you, of course, among which we'll be talking to our good friend Joshua P. Warren. I'm going to have to ask him why the wishing machine. Remember when we had him on last time? He walked me through using the wishing machine, which sits behind me. If you're watching the YouTube stream, you you see it. And... um, we had, uh, I think I did it wrong because it just didn't didn't really produce any results. So we're going to have him talk to talk me through redoing that and see if we can get this wishing machine to work. Because I think there's a power source for it and I didn't have it plugged in. So it wasn't getting the voltage it needs apparently to make this stuff happen. So we'll start over there. Um, but he'll, Joshua will be on Wednesday night. He's actually coming on to talk about this uh, Storm Area 51 event, which is not really a Storm Area 51 event anymore. It is now just a festival near Area 51. Please do not plan on storming Area 51. Uh, and also next week, we'll be talking with Reed Summers. Reed teacher is a teacher and an author, and he'll share the messages from the Allies of Humanity, which is a group of extraterrestrial beings from various planets. So a lot of great shows coming up on the program. Anyway, so uh, with all that said, let's let's uh, let's go to our discussion at hand. We're going to be talking with Adrian Shine tonight. He's a naturalist, also a Loch Ness researcher. Adrian, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here. Hello. So there's been a lot of discussion about the Loch Ness monster and Loch Ness in the news recently. There's been talk about DNA testing and uh, research that's been ongoing. Tell us what, in fact, has been happening in the laboratories in relation to Loch Ness. Okay. Well, last year, uh, Professor Neil Gemmell of Otago University in New Zealand came up with an idea which I first heard about on April 1st, which made me a little bit skeptical. Uh, I don't know whether you have um, April Fool's Day in the United <laughs> yes, States. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes. So uh, his idea was that Uh, water samples would be taken from Loch Ness and that within those water samples would be the DNA of virtually all the species that lived in it. And this was a a wonderful idea because it was so elegant. For over 50 years, researchers have been looking at Loch Ness with cameras above the water, below the water, with sonar, Um, all these direct ways and looking at the species with nets and microscopes. But to think that all we had to do was to take a few liters of water here and there and it would be possible to find out what was living in the place, that that was something fairly novel. Now, actually, it's called environmental DNA testing and it has been done elsewhere. It's been done at sea. Um, and whale DNA has been recovered, and in other environments. And from a fieldwork point of view, it is very elegant. The point is that anything living in fresh water sheds cells of different sorts, uh, skin cells, you can get in fecal matter, all sorts. And the DNA is sort of protected by those skin cells for a, between four and maybe 20 days at the outside. So 
the DNA is around for about a week um, in the, in the, a given sample area. So uh, at the Loch Ness Center, uh, we have a research vessel uh, with the Loch Ness Project, which is my side of things, and uh, we provided that and the base and my laboratory there to the expedition, and we took over 250 samples uh, from Loch Ness along it and across it and throughout its depths, right the way down to the bottom, which is about 700 feet down. Wow. So, so yes, yes, it is quite deep for just a mile of width. You know, it goes down. It's a fault line, you see. And it's deep and it's dark and it's cold. It's got all the um, all the attributes of of dragon country. Yeah. Anyway, uh, away went the samples to different laboratories throughout the world. Some in Australia, Denmark, uh, here in Hull, uh, and the results came in. Uh, we haven't got all the results yet, but we have some of the results now. Obviously. What everybody is waiting for was to see whether or not there was some unknown DNA, because thousands of species have now had their DNA catalogued so that you can, you can see what you've got, basically. But the, you know, the animal kingdom is a very big one. And so and not everything has been catalogued. But Enough has been uh, been found now to be able to certainly talk about vertebrates. Uh, DNA was taken from everything from bacteria up through invertebra- invertebrates, right the way up to the vertebrates. And the, the, the hope would be that there'd be something unknown, but it would go beyond just not knowing. The point about DNA is that you would know, uh, for example, whether you were looking at a reptile, a mammal, an amphibian, or a fish, which would get you somewhat forrader, wouldn't it? Right. And then uh, the other question would be, supposing you did find a reptile, then would that reptile be closer to a turtle, perhaps, or a crocodile? So you would be able to sort of home in to a degree, even if you didn't recognize the DNA. Okay, so last week we had a press conference at the Loch Ness Center, and the basic results uh, were that we could not, there was no reptile DNA of any kind. Now, reptile DNA, of course, would include the sort of prehistoric options, the plesiosaurs, uh, the, the prehistoric monsters. Now, that was no great surprise because for 25 years, we have known that the productivity of Loch Ness is insufficient to sustain a viable breeding resident population of big fish predators. Uh, this we found and published, as I say, almost exactly 25 years ago. And also, by the way, due to our general scientific work and on the temperatures, we know that Loch Ness is far too cold for reptiles uh, to reproduce. 
And so that was no surprise. But subsequent to our 25 years, uh, we have had a number of sort of lateral thinking theories which have emerged uh, to address that point, to accept that point. And all the candidates are fish. One of them, which is my favorite, was the sturgeon. Because sturgeon, although they, um, uh, they come into your waters quite often, you've got a number of sturgeon in the United States. We've only got one here, and it's, it's a marine fish. It enters freshwater only to spawn, and it stops feeding when it comes in. So my suggestion was that perhaps a navigationally challenged sturgeon might on occasion come into Loch Ness. Uh, and not find a mate for spawning and go away again. Uh, now, obviously, DNA surveys would not detect that unless, <laughs> unless by some chance, some remote chance, there was a sturgeon present at the time of sampling. So no st- sturgeon DNA was found, but that does not dismiss my theory, as it were. The other theory was that perhaps there'd be a survivor or two of catfish, European catfish, the wells. Uh, maybe there'd be a survivor or two of some introduced by man, uh, maybe a hundred years ago. They're very long-lived fish, but they couldn't breed in Loch Ness because they need water above 20 degrees centigrade, which does not happen every day in Loch Ness. So... Uh, no DNA from catfish. Um, I'm less keen on catfish as a solution, but they're very big, ugly fish. They're really a, a mouth with a tail. <laughs> uh, you've got some pretty big catfish in the United States. As yes, well. we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> now, the final idea, another fish, was the eel. And the idea was that... Perhaps individuals of the European eel would not go back to sea to breed. You know that eels come into fresh water, then they go back to the Sargasso Sea. Your eels do the same thing. Uh, but it would get huge, just grow and grow and grow, and maybe not breed at all. Well, there have been a few reports of big eels, um, in fact, some of the original reports were of huge eels based upon these multi-hump, these huge multi-hump things that were seen in Loch Ness in the 1930s. Uh, we now recognize those huge manifestations as boat wakes uh, left by the ships moving through the Caledonian Canal, of which Loch Ness is a part. Uh, but there was an enormous amount of eel DNA. Now, the theory uh, about eels is that maybe some of them wouldn't go back to sea and they'd get huge and be seen as monsters. And that was one of the original theories, by the way, back in the 1930s. Well, uh, the point about it is that the DNA survey could not dismiss that theory, not by itself, because the DNA was from the known eel, uh, the European eel. Uh, 
so that is broadly where we are. Now, I'm not too keen on the, e- the big eel theory myself, the so-called eunuch eel theory, because we don't know of this happening anywhere else. Uh, that is eels, freshwater eels, becoming huge. Uh, there was a suggestion that somehow eels might be trapped in Loch Ness. Well, that's, that is nonsense. We've got a perfectly good river, a seven-mile river leading to the sea through the city of Inverness, and that's the river that the eels would have come up in the first place, and it's uh, perfectly capable of allowing seals and salmon into the loch um, all the time. So we don't have trapped eels in Loch Ness, but certainly the DNA theory could not dismiss it by itself. And I've already explained why the DNA theory couldn't actually dismiss the idea of the odd migratory sturgeon or indeed the odd individual survivor uh, of uh, the catfish because we didn't actually detect our known fish predators either. That is seals, otters, um, maganza ducks, they're um, fish-eating ducks, Uh, and cormorants which is also fish-eating, of course. Uh, So there we are. Now, of course, there's much more value to a DNA survey in wider terms than that that particular debate. Uh, We can look for perhaps the progress of invasive species. We've got one of your flatworms uh, crawling about on the bottom of Loch Ness, possibly brought back in the 1960s by... um, investigators, monster investigators from the States. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got um, way, there's a way of looking at nutrient status. Uh, is the loch becoming enriched by uh, human effluent? It's interesting, too, that uh, there is an enormous amount of DNA from species living around the loch, around the lake, the DNA being washed in. Uh, there's a terrific amount of our DNA for a start, human DNA, uh, because, of course, we live around the loch. And the same goes for many of the um, vertebrate species, the mammals, you know, foxes, badgers, um, species like that. So, in fact, the method has enormous potential for difficult parts of the world maybe heavily forested areas, fairly rocky areas, uh, anywhere where DNA might concentrate in a body of fresh water, like a lake, a pond. Sure. Uh, So this uh, exercise at Loch Ness provided a wonderful showcase for this powerful and elegant method, which we will now see used all over the world, and it'll become commonplace. So how confident are we that in the samples that were taken from Loch Ness that you uh, had enough samples and, and were um, successful in collecting what would be considered all of the DNA that might be uh, present in that loch? Well, we did take over 250 samples. Um, we did go all the way along the loch in our, our vessel deep scan. We did sample all the way down through the depths as well, in in you know quite a number of places. 
I think we do have sufficient to go back to what I was saying about a resident viable population, which is by which I mean a breeding population of big fish predators that actually are fully aquatic and live there all the time. Uh, I think we do have enough to dismiss that. And so we are brought back to the more lateral theories uh, whereby individuals might be seen in the loch, like my sturgeon that might come blundering in and not find a mate, like the odd individual, uh, where the density, the population density of a species is very low, uh, like a surviving catfish, for example, uh, because we know that otters uh, walk into the loch and swim around, we know that Maganza ducks fly into the loch. Uh, so where something is either transitory or at a very low density, yes, you could have, you you could it, it could evade detection by by a DNA survey. But for a viable population, no, I think we can knock that one on the head. You've been looking at this for a very long time. You've been studying the phenomena. You've been researching the phenomena. Um, are you convinced that what we know as the Loch Ness Monster is actually just um, a, a, an accepted species on Earth that is either uh, in some way oversized or lost? Well, it could be a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> we, we don't know whether we have one. What we do know is that the lake monster tradition, not just in Loch Ness, but in uh, many North American lakes, um, certainly in Canada, um, in British Columbia, Lake Okanagan, Lake Champlain, um, even Lake Tahoe has its monster very often of that multi-humped sea serpent form because these right. lake monster forms, these stereotypes, are derived from sea monsters, uh, sea serpents, the Norwegian sea serpent and the New England one. Uh, you may not be aware, but hundreds of people in uh, 1817 off the New England coast, the harbour of Gloucester, uh, saw a classic sea serpent uh, with lots lots of humps, and it um, it formed the the sort of stereotype for the later ideas about lake monsters, which were seen as serpentine at that time. Uh, but then, and only about only three years later, we get the first of the plesiosaur fossils found uh, in. Uh, on the English coastline. And that ushered in a change of thought whereby sea monsters were seen as less serpentine and more like so-called prehistoric monsters, the plesiosaurs, which were marine reptiles contemporary with the dinosaurs. They weren't actually dinosaurs. But you know what I mean, long necks, uh, four flippers, stumpy body. Uh, and that is one of the popular stereotypes also for the Loch Ness Monster. But if you buy the cartoon postcards by the Loch side, you will see two stereotypes. You will see the, the classic sea serpent form, the lots of loops or humps, 
and the plesiosaur form. So when we're talking about Loch Ness monsters, we're probably thinking of those stereotypes. Now, in the 1960s, there was a university expedition uh, led by um, um, a chap called Westwood, Baker and Westwood, and they 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 looked at the the, the lock for a long time, and they concluded that the multi-humped sea serpent forms were actually shipwakes left by vessels moving through Loch Ness, which is a part of the Caledonian Canal. Um, that left the plesiosaur form, and we do know that on calm water, uh, some. Uh, aquatic birds, some uh, some birds like magansas and cormorants, uh, with long necks, and that's the sort of classic form uh, derived from the surgeon's picture. And I, and I know that everybody listening will know what the surgeon's picture is. It's that upraised head and neck, that famous picture, wonderful thing. It was a fake, but wasn't it beautiful? <laughs> so it was prescient of what many people then began to see. Uh, that's the point. Uh, we were led. Our expectations were led in that direction. Now, when we look at a scene and there are known objects within it, objects we recognize, we can often get a cue to distance. So if we see something we don't recognize, we can work out how far away it is and roughly, therefore, how big it is. Well, our um, water birds here have a profile very similar to the surgeon's picture. It's just that they are small. Um, actually, not quite as small as the surgeon's picture actually was because it was built on a toy submarine. But anyway, uh, the, the point is that if you, if you can work out how big that that bird is, it's not a monster. But if the, and, and even if there are no objects in your scene, there are waves, and that provides a sort of receding texture. But if it goes calm, which it doesn't often do at Loch Ness, but when it does go calm, the investigators always called it Nessie weather. And so you lose that cue to distance. And uh, in certain conditions of light, suddenly that two-foot neck becomes about four to six foot right. in your perception. And that becomes a monster. So those are the ways currently we are thinking about the two stereotypes. And so our discussions about sturgeon and catfish and big eels are really academic games, working out ways in which creatures large and unusual to Loch Ness could nevertheless on occasion be seen there, irrespective of the food resources in Loch Ness, which are low. They are low because there are a few nutrients being yielded by the ancient hard rocks surrounding the, the loch, and the water is so dark that the light necessary for photosynthesis does not penetrate far. Um, so those are the conundrums that are left in this 
fascinating debate uh, focused on Loch Ness. What's next for you in the Loch Ness Project? Well, we will be, we've now got, we've been set a task because not all the results are in. We will be looking and comparing those species lists with the ones we've got because there are a few surprises. For example, grayling have been detected, and we weren't aware of grayling. The stone loach has been detected. We weren't aware of that. So we're going to have to look for these um, these surprises within the system. We'll be looking at some uh, things like the nature of the bacteria. Um, are they uh, methane-producing bacteria? Are they methane-consuming bacteria? Because uh, a lot of the productivity we found uh, from previous collaborations uh, in Loch Ness is driven by bacteria breaking down material washed in from the catchment area, so-called alloctonous inputs. Um, about 20% of the productivity in the winter is, is due to that. Uh, so there are some fascinating uh, and unique features about Loch Ness, which we would wish to explore. You have a website, uh, lochnessproject.com. Is that the best place for people to monitor your work? Um, we certainly try and publish the, uh, give references to the published papers. I think we're probably a little bit out of date at the moment, but um, we will be putting an item in on the DNA. Uh, fairly soon. And if, if uh, not all of the results are in yet, when do you expect all the, those final results to come in from this testing? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to say because there are so many laboratories engaged, uh, but we'd, we'd hope within a, f a few months because there will be a, a published paper. Professor Gemmel's um, uh, working on it now. We've made some contributions and uh, other people will be as well. It was quite a big-scale study. On the scale of DNA surveys, it's not the first, um, but it is now a proven method, and this is one of the, I think, if not the biggest that has actually been done in terms of the number of sampling sites. It's an amazing study, actually, and, and it seems to have so many additional applications uh, once we start to understand how it works entirely. But, Adrian, thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, thanks for the update. Great information. Great discussion. Good luck with your work. Thank you. Um, I did notice, you know, in, in follow-up here to the discussion with Adrian Shine about this DNA testing of Loch Ness, um, I immediately thought, and he mentioned it, you know, any body of water that could be a receptacle for land-based DNA, uh, the DNA from land-based animals that could be deposited in that body of water could uh, show some results uh, for that those land-based animals. So, you know, immediately you think of Bigfoot and you think mm, of um, right. even alien landing sites. I right. mean, there's a whole bunch of things that this could be applied to. I am very interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, this eDNA technique is really the star of the show here. It is, yeah, completely. Uh, and again, thanks to Adrian, and also thank you to CJ, uh, our first break of the night, a lot of, or first guest of the night. A lot of great stuff coming up on the show, uh, and we will see you again tomorrow night. Bruce the Shark Markison will be in for me. It'll be a great show, as always, Beyond Reality Radio. 
Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.